I am a rock. I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. The song, I am a rock, Paul Simon wrote it in 1965. Simon and Garfunkel released it as a single in 1966. It rose to number three on the charts. Why? Because it resonated with people. It was popular because it spoke out loud what so many people's parts feel. The desire to become a rock, the impulse to build the walls, to keep everyone out, to repudiate love and laughter, to not need anything or anyone. Here's the same theme in an untitled poem by Kate McGann. I don't need anyone, I said. Then you came. I need, I need, I need you. I needed you. What did you teach me? Not to need you. Not to need. And then there was a Reddit post by Sharma Jizawali who said, quote, I don't want to be in love anymore. I just want to be left alone. And no, I am not depressed or something. No suicide is happening here. I'm fine. Trust me. End quote. I bet you can resonate. So you want love, but you also don't want love. But you want love, but you don't. You do, you don't. You're conflicted. How do you understand this conflict within you? Can you and I understand this push-pull about love, this attraction avoidance, this yes and no within us more clearly? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And we must. Or, if we don't, we'll wind up always skating along the edge of love, never really entering in. And there are consequences for that. No one put those consequences more succinctly than the English poet and playwright Robert Browning, who said, quote, Without love, our earth is a tomb. So we do want to be loved, but also we don't want to be loved. Now, why the conflict? Why the conflict? Here's the core of it. We want the benefits of love, but we don't want the costs of being loved. David Viscott said, quote, to love and be loved is to feel the sun from both sides. End quote. And Michael Jackson, the singer, said, quote, If you don't have that memory of being loved, you are condemned to search the world for something to fill you up. End quote. And I don't know a lot about Michael Jackson, but I bet he knows what he's talking about with that. The benefits. We want to be loved. But let's talk about the costs. 
the costs of being loved, the costs of allowing oneself to be loved, what it costs you to allow yourself to be loved. We all know that real love is given freely. We understand that. If love is charitable, if love is agape, it's got to be given freely. It can't be forced. It can't be coerced. It's got to be given freely. But here's the thing. In this fallen world, real love is never received freely by us in our fallen human condition. There's a cost to letting that love in. And almost no one talks about the costs of being loved. I find that so strange. It boggles my mind. People do not think this way about love. There are costs to receiving love, to accepting love, to allowing love from outside of us into our hearts. It's painful to be loved in this fallen world. I'm talking about agape. I'm talking about real love here. It's not understood by so many people, especially those who are not in touch with trauma or or maybe who haven't suffered as much as others. This was reflected in Bernard Brady's 2003 book, Christian Love, How Christians Through the Ages Have Understood Love. The second sentence of the book, in the preface, he writes, quote, loving seems entirely natural and being loved seems wonderfully good, end quote. Oh, really? Not to many people. To many, many people, the prospect of being loved does not seem wonderfully good, at least to many of their parts. An RCC member not too long ago talked with me. She reached out to me and she said, I am so glad that you can discuss, quote, tolerating being loved, end quote. She really wanted to emphasize how it's important that we understand that some people can barely tolerate being loved. Why? Why is this painful? Well, real love, agape, first of all, it burns away things that are sinful within us. Real love doesn't coexist with vice within us very well. It always takes action. Bernard Brady, who I quoted before, said, quote, love transforms those who love and those who are loved. And Elif Shafak in The 40 Rules of Love wrote, quote, every true love and friendship is a story of unexpected transformation. If we are the same person before and after we loved, that means we haven't loved enough. So this is the first thing to understand. Love burns away things that are sinful within us. That love is going to transform us and that change is scary. Fyodor Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment wrote, quote, taking a new step, uttering a new word is what people fear most, end quote. Real love also purifies us from anything that is just disordered or dysfunctional or imperfect. It doesn't even have to be morally wrong. Anything that's disordered or dysfunctional or imperfect is going to be purified by real love. That's the second reason. The third reason is that real love is the greatest good. And because it's the greatest good, it sometimes requires us to give up lesser goods. 
These goods could be perceived goods or they could be actual goods. And these include our coping strategies, the crutches that have helped us to you know, somehow survive the past. I use the analogy of a safe, right? Sometimes there's limited room in the safe. And if we're given real gold, real love, we may have to give up other good things that are in the safe to make room. We may have to give up the silver and the copper and the bronze. We also experience vulnerability. We have fears about losing what we'd have, the good things that we know. We might lose being loved in the future. There are so many more things around identity, around emotion, around our relationships, around spirituality, around cognitions. We're going to talk about all of those things in this episode. For love to be real, for love to be agape, that means you allowing me to love all of you all your parts, your entire being, not just the acceptable parts of you that you put in the shop window, that carefully curated image that you put out there to other people, not just what you allow others to see, but if love's going to be real, it's going to pull for all of you. And the greatness of that adventure of loving and being loved with our entire beings, that is intimidating to so many people. Paul Catalanado, in a Catholic Weekly article, said, quote, Love, in some sense, is nothing other than an invitation to great joy and suffering. And so they shy away from it. End quote. People shy away from this adventure of loving. Dietrich von Hildebrand, the great Catholic phenomenologist, said, quote, Some wish to linger with small joys in the state of harmless happiness, in which they feel themselves to be the master of the situation, lacking any element of surprise or adventure, end quote. He's talking about those with small lives who aren't daring to be loved and to love. Here's what I want for us. I want to go on this adventure of being loved and loving together with you. I want you to come with me into the themes of this episode. I want you to really engage with what I'm presenting to you. I don't want you to listen like the Athenians listened to Paul about the resurrection of the dead in Acts 17.32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, the Athenians mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. You know, but they really weren't that interested. Only a few of the Athenians joined Paul. I want you to stay with me in this episode, episode 96 of Interior Integration for Catholics. It's released on August 1st, 2022, and it's titled, quote, I am a rock. How trauma hardens us against being loved. I'm Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and I am so pleased that we can share and engage with this information. Now, why do I think being loved is so important? Well, first, because being loved is absolutely essential. Why do I think being loved is so important? Well, first, because receiving love is absolutely essential. It is our starting point in the spiritual life. And second, because most people will not really allow themselves to be loved. 
Many, many people never allow themselves to, to be deeply loved. Psychiatrist and Harvard professor George Valiant wrote, quote, it's very hard for most of us to tolerate being loved, end quote. And that's been my experience as well. The vast majority of people have chosen to severely limit how much love they will let in, how much love they will tolerate. Second thing, you can't love unless you're willing to be loved. You can't love unless you are willing to be loved first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Look at the order here. God loved us first. We cannot generate any love on our own. We can reflect love, we can channel love, but we can't create love out of nothing like God can. We have to we have to cooperate in love. We have to be open to love in order to love, in order to follow the two great commandments. That is what this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast is all about. It's all about preparing the way for you, for you to have a much deeper, richer, much more intimate relationship with God and the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother. I want you to have a deep, personal relationship, an intimate relationship with God and Mary. That's what I want for you. And if you won't tolerate taking in real love, if you deprive yourself of real love, you are going to wind up in a de facto hell on earth. The most miserable people on earth are the loveless people. Loveless, not because no one will love them. God loves us all. But loveless because they actively or passively reject love. And so many people do that. It's the great tragedy. And there are spiritual consequences to cutting ourselves off from real love. Our hearts become small. They become hard. They become closed. They become fearful. They fester in wounds. And if we persist in refusing to be loved and to love, there is no other place for us in the afterlife than hell. That's what I think hell is. A place for those who have refused love. That's how serious all of this is. There are eternal consequences of the highest order. And it's not that God wants us to go to hell. It's not like he's sort of up there with his account book and his big long beard, you know, figuring out, calculating and deciding, oh, we're not good enough to get into heaven. So up, up too bad, you didn't make it. Down to hell you go. Pull the handle, pull the lever for the trap door. You go down the chute into hell. It's not like that. Nobody is in hell without choosing it, choosing it by refusing to engage with love. Now, what so many of our parts really, really want is what I call hallmark movie love. Hallmark movie love. In Latin, this is rendered as lovus hallmarkius, hallmark love. Yes, I've given it a ridiculous translation, But that's because hallmark love is not only a ridiculous concept, it's a dangerous one. And I mean it. I can just hear it. Really, Dr. Peter? All those sweet, feel-good Christmas movies? What are you, some sort of Christmas Grinch to criticize hallmark movies? I mean, really, come on. That's a bit much. All right, hear me out. Hear me out. Hallmark love. The idea is love is always just around the corner. It's painless. 
It's fun. Love is delightful. Love is gratifying. Love is enjoyable. Love takes away suffering. Love is clean and tidy. It's all a myth. The Hallmark Company is selling illusions in those movies. Their movie production arm is peddling falsehoods about love to an audience who wants what they are offering to be true. That wants Hallmark love, lovus Hallmarkius, to actually be true. But it isn't. It's all made up. And author Christine Brown captured this theme in her online article, Living in a Hallmark Movie, which was posted on December 11th, 2015. She says, quote, I want to live in a Hallmark movie. I want to walk down the cobblestone main street into the corner coffee shop where everyone greets you with a smile and Merry Christmas. I want to move to a new town where you immediately become acquainted with everyone and your child makes instant friends at school and there's always time to bake Christmas cookies and decorate trees and drink hot cocoa with peppermint sticks. I want to live in a Hallmark movie. I want to walk my child to school holding hands and have him tell me how much he loves me and what a great mom I am. I want to live where kids don't make bad choices and parents don't make mistakes. Where the toughest decision is whether to stay in the small town where you grew up or to chase after a promising dream in the big city where things always just work out. And the movie always ends with a kiss from your true love and snow, always snow. But life isn't a Hallmark movie, not even close. End quote. Just love that closing line to that paragraph. Let's look at the example of a life led in love. Let's look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest lover ever, who died making the greatest act of love ever, and it was nothing like a Hallmark movie. We assume that we want love, and we do, or at least parts of us do. Parts of us want Hallmark love, but other parts are more open to other love. We are made for love. We are made in love. That's a beautiful line in the Litanies of the Heart written by Dr. Jerry for Souls and Hearts. He said, quote, Lord Jesus, you created me in love for love, end quote. That's one of my favorite lines in those prayers, to just be sharing that idea with our Lord. Lord Jesus, you created me in love for love. Now, I want to take a little break here and discuss parts. I mentioned parts before, the parts of us. And I get into this much more heavily in episode 71, A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this right now because uh, I've addressed it in other podcasts, including episode 71. But these parts are separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own unique, prominent needs, its role in our life, its own emotions, its own body sensations, its own guiding beliefs and assumptions, its own typical thoughts, intentions, desires, impulses, its own interpersonal style, its own worldview. And each part also has an image of God. A whole religion develops around the part's understanding of God and self and the relationship between God and self. So these are like little independently operating personalities within us. They have different roles within our self system, and each of them, and each of them has a very limited vision, a very narrow slice of experience. They have different priorities. They have different things that they're trying to pursue for us, different goods that they're seeking for us. And some parts 
aren't that interested in being loved. They're, they're focused on never being heard again. Right? They're focused on protection from harm. They're focused on defending against threats from others. They're very protective. You can see this in episode 89 when I talked about your trauma, your body, protection versus connection. There is then this conflict that can develop around being loved. You can see it in this quote from Ruby Walker, who wrote this in Advice I Ignored, Stories and Wisdom from a Formerly Depressed Teenager. Ruby said, quote, I wished I didn't need an ocean of space to feel comfortable. I still wanted to be loved. Yet again, I felt like two people, one who desperately needed a hug and one who would break apart at the slightest touch. How could I get people to keep their distance without leaving completely? How long would it take for them to get tired of the way I flinched and evaded? End quote. What a great little passage to illustrate the conflict that we have in our parts around being loved. Parts of us want to be loved. Parts of us don't. It's not that they are opposed to the idea of love. They're opposed to the costs. They're opposed to the vulnerability. And we're going to get into why trauma can harden us against being loved. Why unresolved trauma especially can harden us against being loved. So I want you to imagine a bush. Imagine a bush. And a bush has got roots, and then it's got a trunk, and then it's got these uh, stems, these stems, these main stems that come off of the trunk. This one's got five stems. And then off of those stems come the branches and the leaves and the fruit. And I call this bush... A bush also because it's an acronym. The Bush of Unresolved Trauma and Humiliation. Right? So if you take the letters of Bush of Unresolved Trauma and Humiliation, it spells out bush. Right? So the roots of the bush are the unresolved trauma. That's where it all starts in that unresolved trauma. And then there's the single trunk right near the ground. And that is shame. That's the shame that's generated by the unresolved trauma. And then the five major stems that come up from that single trunk, they form the acronym CRIES, as in cries for help. C-R-I-E-S. Each of these main stems is driven by the shame in the trunk, right? Shame that results from the unresolved trauma in the roots. And so we're going to look at five different dimensions. Cognitions, those are all the things that have to do with our thinking, relationships, identity, emotions, and spirituality. Cognitions, relationships, identity, emotions, and spirituality. Those are the five main stems that come up from the trunk of shame that is being fed by the roots of unresolved trauma. Each of those main stems has branches, branches that cross and interweave in this big bush, and the branches have fruits. We'll talk about the fruits. So let's let's start with the roots, right? The unresolved trauma in the roots. This includes what I call the original trauma or original sin. And these roots are underground. They're usually not seen. They do their work in the darkness of the earth. They're not apparent to the naked eye. And 
check out episodes 88 and 89 of this podcast. All Those two episodes are all about the nature of trauma. The primary effect of unresolved trauma is shame. Right? So if you want to know much more about a definition of trauma, how I see trauma, all, all of sort of an introduction to trauma, go back to episodes 88 and 89. For now, we're just going to say, look, unresolved trauma are the roots. The single trunk is the shame. And I defined shame in episode 37 of this podcast. Shame is five things. Shame is a primary emotion, a bodily reaction, a signal, a judgment, and an action. And I spent 13 episodes of this podcast discussing shame at great length. Episodes 37 to 49. I encourage you to go over those episodes again. Most of you probably listened to them already. Listen to them again. Really get a grip on shame because understanding shame is the key to understanding almost all psychological dysfunction, almost all failure of well-being. And understanding shame is the key to really comprehending why you have difficulties with your human formation. I can't stress that enough. So much goes back to shame in the natural realm. Shame has this central role. There's an issue of survival with shame, life and death. There are deep assumptions that my shame is so bad that it'll kill me. And protector parts assume that they have to defend against our exile parts that carry the burdens of shame. Protector parts believe they have to keep the shame out of awareness, that they have to keep it buried, that they have to keep it distant. They don't know that we can work with shame and the parts that carry the shame in a collaborative, cooperative, constructive way. Our protector parts don't know that shame can be resolved, that the burden of shame can be lifted and there can be healing. And I really like this quote by Kai Cheng Tom, who said, quote, When you're a child trapped in a situation of physical or psychological deprivation, you learn shame as an efficient, elegant mechanism of survival. Shame simultaneously defends you from the reality that danger is out of your control, since the problem is not that you're unloved and deprived, it's that you're bad, and prevents you from doing or saying anything challenging that might provoke a threat. So I'm really going to encourage you to take a look at shame again. Really consider shame in your own life. Go back to those episodes 37 to 49. If you're not really familiar with them, you'll learn so much about shame. But today I want to go to the main stems off the trunk. Remember that acronym CRIES? Cognitions, relationships, identity, emotions, and spirituality. I want to start with emotions. That's where it makes sense to start. Five aspects of emotions, right? Grief, anger, fears, flooding, and shutdown. The acronym there is GAFs, right? So many of these emotions are generated from the shame that results from the unresolved trauma. Now, we heard in episode 94 at length from Bernard Brady, our philosopher of love, that love is a movement from your heart, from your soul. It's a movement from the innermost depths of your being, from your core self. Emotions are intimately involved with love because love is affective. And I want to start with these emotions that get in the way of us being loved. 
What emotions come up that make it harder for us to be loved? And I'm going to start with grief. This is the emotional reaction to a deep sense of loss. It's sadness about what you don't have that you need. There are parts that want to be seen and heard and known and loved by the one who might love you. All of you, all your parts, in some way want to be loved. All of you wants to be healed. Parts surge up. Exiled parts want to come to the surface. Parts that carry grief have often never been loved. They've never been connected with in an emotional way. They've never been included in the relationship with your innermost self. They've never been included in relationships with others. Many of them have never been seen and have never been in a connected relationship. And so they want to come up, but they bring with them this intensity of grief, which causes huge alarm bells to go off and a lot of reactions by your protectors in your system to stifle that. There can also be anticipatory grief. If I allow myself to love, I could lose that love, right? The, the one who loves me could die, right? As you're contemplating being loved by somebody else. That leads us into the second emotion of fear. This is an emotion that drives so much fleeing from love. So much fleeing from love. This is a really big one. In fact, there's a name for it. Philophobia, fear of love. All of us, I believe, have parts that fear love. Robert Firestone, a psychologist, wrote that being loved arouses anxiety because it threatens longstanding psychological defenses formed early in life in relation to emotional pain and rejection therefore leaving a person feeling more vulnerable. We have these fears about being revealed. We have these fears of vulnerability. We have fears of loneliness. We have fears of the unknown. We have fears of being hurt one more time, like Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football, winding up flat on your back again. Fears of betrayal, fears of abandonment. So much of this fear is driven by shame. And all of this fear is a barrier to being loved. All of this fear is a barrier to being loved. If we become overwhelmed with fear, it is very difficult to allow somebody to love us, especially when we're adults. And Bertrand Russell wrote, quote, to fear love is to fear life. And those who fear life are already three parts dead. Donna Lynn Hope wrote, quote, all the bruised lives, searching hearts. Everyone wants a love story, but few will risk what it takes to live one, end quote. And why? Because of fear. And a lot of people recognize that, but what they don't know is that the fear is driven by the shame, which is driven by the unresolved trauma. When we were in the pristine state before original sin, there wasn't this fear. There wasn't the shame. That all came into the world with original sin, with what I call the original trauma. Third emotion, anger. So much of anger is driven by fear, which is driven by shame. Our protector parts can use anger to distract us from fear, and from grief. Shannon Alder wrote, Behind every angry soul is a wounded child that just wanted you to love them for who they are. I think that's really, really true. People misunderstand that all the time. 
Anger is so often a response to shame and to fear. It's a way of distracting. It's a way of not addressing the underlying issues, again, caused by unresolved trauma in the roots of our bush. Let's talk about flooding. This is emotional overwhelm. This is the fourth of the um, five main stems coming up from the trunk of our bush. Flooding is emotional overwhelm. This is when emotions become too intense, all dysregulated. It's hyperarousal in our autonomic nervous system, moving into a fight or flight mode. The intensity of emotions becomes very great. Often, that's because old emotions from previous unresolved traumas are welling up. Parts that carry the burden of intense emotions, they want to be seen, heard, known, and understood. They no longer want to be exiled, banished in the unconscious. They want a voice. They want a relationship. They want redemption. And Paul Simon in I Am a Rock talks about this in this verse. He says, don't talk of love. Well, I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. You can just hear his protector parts, right? And there's so many contradictions in this little stanza. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. They're not dead. Those feelings are not dead. They are actually not even sleeping. They're just buried and they're waiting for an opportunity to be addressed. The parts that carry those feelings want to be healed. If I never loved, I never would. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I'm an island. And this is all intimately bound up in our nervous systems. Lebo Grand said, quote, Our biggest challenge is that we have an overwhelming desire for an extraordinary love story, but a low capacity to hold space for it in our nervous system. End quote. And I think that is just so insightful. We are embodied beings. We are soul and body composites. And our bodies have so much influence over what we experience inside. Okay, so let's go on to the fifth. The fifth of this in the gaffs, the S, is shutting down. Avoiding inner experiences is one of Nathanson's four defensive scripts for avoiding shame. And I talked about that in the shame series. Avoiding inner experiences. And one way to avoid inner experiences is to shut down. We call this hypoarousal. This is where we move down out of the window of tolerance into the freeze mode. So I sometimes use an example of an electrical panel, a breaker box. You know, this is a metal box with a door in, in, on it. It's down in your basement or your utility closet. It's got the main circuit breaker and then all the individual circuit breakers for all the individual circuits. Shutting down is like throwing the main, shutting down all emotions. You cannot just shut down selective emotions like throwing individual breakers. It doesn't work like that. If you start throwing breakers, you're going to start throwing the breakers on the positive emotions first. But the cost seems to be worth it to at least some of your protector parts so that you don't get overwhelmed. You move into that freeze mode and things just shut down. That doesn't leave you open to being loved. Again, that's another protective position. 
We have a very difficult time tolerating being loved when we are not in our window of tolerance. If we're in fight or flight mode or if we're in freeze mode, we move very much into self-protection to a focus on survival, on just perpetuating our lives, our existence, just continuing to, to survive. We're not open to love. We've moved into survival mode. We're not seeking connection. We're not open to God. And Father Jacques Philippe, in his great book, Searching for and maintaining peace said, quote, The more our soul is peaceful and tranquil, the more God is reflected in it, the more his grace acts through us. On the other hand, if our soul is agitated and troubled, the grace of God is able to act only with much greater difficulty. God is a God of peace. He does not operate except in peace, not in trouble and agitation. End quote. So it helps so much to have that emotional regulation, that sense of being in our window of tolerance to be able to connect with God. And so many times, fear is identified as the barrier. Fear as a result of shame drove Adam and Eve into the bushes in Genesis 3 after original sin where they hid from God. Shame, right? Their shame drove their fear. Their fear drove their avoidant behaviors into the bushes, separated from God, hiding from him. In John 14, verse 27, our Lord tells us, quote, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, end quote. So we can see how this fear holds us back from being open to being loved by God. So all of that is that first main stem off of the trunk, right? That's all in emotions. The five branches of emotions, grief, fear, flooding, anger, shutting down. All right, so let's go to the second stem, right? This is the cognition stem, right? This is all about thinking. This has to do with our perceptions. And when we are struggling with unresolved trauma that generates shame, our perceptions become very sensitive. We, be, we can become very vigilant. We scan for threats to the environment because we don't feel safe, right? This leads to negative self-talk too, the shame does. And the shame leads to negative thoughts about the self, negative self-talk. Messages like, I am unloved, I am unlovable. I don't deserve to be loved. This often happens in families where the parents express conditional love and the child begins to believe that if they achieved an unattainable ideal of perfection, then they would get the love they need. Negative self-talk includes things like, I will be seen and I will see myself and it won't be tolerable. Even thoughts that I might contaminate anyone who would love me, I might contaminate them with my badness or I won't live up to the love. All kinds of doubts get fostered about goodness in the world, about the nature of others, skepticism, skepticism about who actually makes the effort to love. And it can lead to demanding perfection from others before allowing oneself to be loved. Joe Nesbo wrote, quote, To have the chance of being loved, we have to take a chance on being destroyed inside. End quote. Remember that love is transformative, right? Parts sense that within us and they can have a pessimistic evaluation of what that looks like. They can believe that I might open myself up, but then no one will love me and I'll be deceived and tricked and betrayed and rejected and abandoned again. And so therefore we talk ourselves out of being willing to be loved. 
The other thing that can happen in this cognitions stem is that we can get distracted. And Paul Simon in I Am a Rock describes this. He says, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I am shielded in my armor. He's going to distract himself with his books and his poetry and things that stimulate him to look away from the shame, to look away from the unresolved trauma, to not deal with it. But it winds up controlling him all the more because it's not resolved. So there's two ways we can go with this. We can dwell inwardly. We can dwell on our own damage. We can focus on our wounds or we can try to avoid them, right? We can direct our attention to all the things that are wrong with us and pull inward. Self-absorption, ruminating, obsessing about our defects, curling up inside to protect ourselves, not letting anyone in, right? Or we can avoid, we can distract, we can hide from our own trauma, we can try to escape, we can run away from our own shadow. None of that is going to bear any good fruit. Or the other option is that we can reach out and embrace love anyway, as we are. We can trust that parts of us may be seeing things inaccurately, thinking about things in ways that are distorted. We can begin to question whether or not these deeply held assumptions, many of which have never been verbalized, many of which have never been put into words, whether those really are true. Right. So that's the cognition stem, right? We've covered the emotion stem and the cognition stem. Let's go to the identity stem. That's the I in cries. And, when, and I'm, I'm going to draw some points from Robert Firestone's article, Why Do So Many People Respond Negatively to Being Loved? That's on psychalive.org. There can be this deep assumption that comes from the shame that I am inadequate and unworthy of love. That's a hallmark of shame that affects our identity. And it's really important because as Stephen Chbosky says, quote, we accept the love we think we deserve, end quote. Robert Firestone argues that being valued or seen in a positive light is confusing because it conflicts with the negative self-concept that many people form within their family. Being loved can provoke an identity crisis, he says. And I think that's absolutely true. Remember, love is transformative. It's going to completely change us if we allow it in. What's going to happen to our identity? And your identity, at least for some of your parts, can be very bound up in being unloved and unlovable. It can be very much focused. It can very much revolve around your shame. Parts may not know who you are if you become loved. Such a radical change would take place. And it can be very disconcerting to lose a sense of who I am, even if my identity is a negative one. There's a comfort in the familiarity of the dysfunction I know. So I can accept and even seek out rejection and failure because they're familiar and they harmonize with my life narrative. There can be this deep sense of having to earn conditional love, but that's not what real love is about. Dietrich von Hildebrand in The Art of Living said, quote, Love is not concerned with a person's accomplishments. It is a response to a person's being. That is why a typical word of love is to say, Quote, I love you because you are as you are, end quote. 
This is complicated so much when there is very little or no ordered self-love. We're going to be discussing ordered self-love in an upcoming episode. One of Nathanson's four strategies to cope with shame is to attack the self. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. I discussed those in my shame series. But self-attack is a way that we cope with shame. The other thing that happens in terms of identity is that there are these internal disconnects that happen to survive trauma. Love relationships, on the other hand, pull for integration. John Andrews wrote that love is never fragmented. It's an inseparable whole, which does not delight in bits and pieces. If we are to enter into a love relationship, it is going to have this integrating effect on us. It's going to pull together things that we disconnected in order to survive the trauma. And that integration is going to bring up parts of ourselves that we have rejected as too scary, too unacceptable, too unlovable, too dangerous, too overwhelming, too much in some way or other to be allowed a seat at the table of our consciousness. That integration was intolerable at the time we went through the overwhelming traumatic events. But those events, having been ended, leave this vestigial chaos in its wake, these disconnects in their wake. And so much of the effort toward good human formation is reconnecting with ourselves. It's bringing these exiled parts back into relationship, helping them release the burdens that they have. It takes a lot of courage to really be loved. In Ursula Wirtz, in Trauma and Beyond, The Mystery of Transformation, said, quote, I consider love to be the matrix for this transformation, which calls new being into existence. Love is the power to reawaken and bring to the fire what has been entombed or distorted by traumatic forces or has retreated out of defensiveness and self-protection. Without love and compassion for the fragility of human identity in the face of death and the reality of evil, the madness found in those barren places of the soul might not be meaningfully encountered. For the stripping away of the constricting cocoon of traumatic fixations and the untangling of what has become distorted and convoluted during painful traumatization, love is needed. What she is saying, what Ursula Wirtz is saying is that love is absolutely essential. Such a great quote, this transformation. She talks about calling a new being into existence. When you look at the before and after identities of people who have th worked through their trauma, there is a radical revolutionary difference. Very few people actually work through their trauma, though, because of all of these things that we're talking about in this episode, because of the fear, because of the cognitions, the thoughts, because of the concerns about identity transformation, because of the fears and relationships because of spiritual factors and God images. The fruit of this branch, this identity stem, if we just slide along, if we just glide along without resisting, is that you will let your burdened parts define yourself. You will let those traumatized parts of you 
and those parts that guard you from the traumatized parts, those are going to be the ones to determine who you are in your own mind. With their limited vision, with their narrow slice of experience, with their distorted ideas, that's the fruit. But there's another way. We can work gently with ourselves. We can allow ourselves to be seen through the eyes of those who do love us. And that includes our Lord. That includes Our Lady. We'll talk about that more towards the end of the episode. But let's go on right now to the fourth branch. We've covered to the fourth main stem. We've covered the first three main stems. That's the emotion stem, the cognition stem, and the identity stem. Let's talk about the relationship stem. The relationship stem. Love affirms the other. Love responds to the other. Love is unitive. Love is steadfast. Those are four more of Bernard Brady's characteristics of agape, of real love. And we described those at length in episode four. Love affirms the other. Love responds to the other. Love is unitive. Love is steadfast. What gets in the way of taking this in in relationships? Well, again, we're going to go back to our main trunk, to the effects of shame. Shame leads us to lack trust in others, to lack confidence in others. Sigmund Freud noted this. He said, quote, how bold one gets when one is sure of being loved, end quote. Well, let's take the converse. If you're not sure of being loved, then there's so much more caution that comes in because of concerns about danger. There's also fears of exposure in relationship. Yes, exposure to myself, but also exposure to the one who is loving me. And here's where Jada DeWalt wrote, quote, to be deeply loved means a willingness to cut yourself wide open, exposing your vulnerabilities, your hopes, your hurts, your fears, flaws, hiding behind the highlight reel of who you are the, is the real you, and that person is just as worthy of love. There is nothing more terrifying or fulfilling than complete love. It's worth the risk. Reach for it. End quote. But in relationship, this fear of rejection, right? Here's where the relationship sort of intersects with the emotion, right? This is where the branches start intertwining. This is where the main stems start intertwining. The fear of rejection comes up. And John Amodeo says, quote, The fear of rejection makes sense. If we've had a steady diet of shame, blame, and criticism, we learn that the world is not a safe place. Something within us mobilizes to protect our tender heart from further stings and insults. End quote. There's lots of concerns that the one who loves me will hurt me, that it's inevitable. And we have choices again here. We get to choose what fruits are going to grow on this bush. If we slide along, if we just allow these natural patterns driven by our parts to to follow their course, we're going to be focused on protection. We are not going to be focused on connection. This is going to lead to relationship sabotage. And how do we sabotage relationships? We sabotage relationships by a variety of ways. These are little branches off of this main stem of relationship. We can get into undue criticism of the other. The idea being you are not enough for me. We can move to withdrawal and isolation. This is one of Nathanson's strategies for coping with shame. And Paul Simon in I Am A Rock, he's got a stanza devoted to it. He says, quote, hiding in my room, safe within my womb, I touch no one and no one touches me. 
I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. He is isolating himself. He's withdrawn into isolation, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. He's trying to protect himself within his own womb, right? That's what people try to do. They try to take care of themselves. Withdrawal, isolation, avoidance. There's another way of doing this too, by pursuing people for love who won't love you in return. And Zachary Quinto had a great quote on that. He said, quote, I found myself in a pattern of being attracted to people who were somehow unavailable. And what I realized was that I was protecting myself because I equate the idea of connection and love with trauma and death, end quote, right? What a great insight, Zachary Quinto, right? If only more people had that insight about the reason why they withdraw so much from love is that parts are firmly convinced that if they connect in love, they're going to experience trauma and death. And so we push others away. Robert Firestone, that psychologist, said, quote, basically love is scary when it contrasts with childhood trauma. In that situation, the beloved feels compelled to act in ways that hurt the lover, behaving in a punitive manner, distancing themselves, and pushing love away. And one of the characters in Kate Lady's novel Dream On said, quote, you push people away, Marley. You don't realize it, but you do. You close yourself off to anyone and anything that doesn't fit in your perfect little hamster ball of life. But you can't experience love only on your own terms. It doesn't work that way. End quote. This can lead to aggression, right? People can push others away when they're feeling threatened. This is often fueled by anger, right? Anger in our emotional mainstem. Attacking others is one of Nathanson's four strategies of coping with shame. And why do we attack? Because we're afraid, because we're struggling with shame. St. Francis de Sales said, quote, Those who love to be feared, fear to be loved. And they themselves are more afraid than anyone. For whereas other men fear only them, they fear everyone. End quote. This is brilliant insights from decades ago, from centuries ago, from St. Francis de Sales, that he recognized that so much of anger and aggression is fueled by fear. Another fruit of this bush, this, this bush of unresolved shame and humiliation, is emotional disconnection. And there was a 1982 hit song by Quarter Flash called Harden My Heart. And one of the lyrics is, I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to swallow my tears. I'm going to turn and leave you here, right? Disconnecting emotionally from the relationships. And why do we do that? We do that out of fear and shame. And we have a quote here from Pete Walker who said, quote, many freeze types unconsciously believe that people and danger are synonymous and that safety lies in solitude, Outside of fantasy, many give up entirely on the possibility of love. The freeze response, also known as the camouflage response, often triggers the individual into hiding, isolating and eschewing human contact as much as possible. This type can be so frozen in retreat mode that it seems as if their starter button is stuck in the off position. It is usually the most profoundly abandoned child, the lost child, who is forced to choose and habituate to the freeze response. 
Unable to successfully employ fight, flight, or fawn responses, the freeze type's defenses develop around classical dissociation. Dietrich von Hildebrand talked about how so many people shrink away from commitment, and others have difficulties receiving partial, incomplete, or imperfect love. So many people are looking to other human beings to provide replacements for God's love, and they are so dissatisfied when the love that they receive from other people is partial, incomplete, or imperfect. Mother Angelica, in her little book of life lessons and everyday spirituality, said, quote, Allow people to love you as they must love you, not as you want them to love you. Even God does not love us as we wish him to. Learning to love is learning to accept love as it comes. And one of the examples I use here is the example of glazed carrots. Glazed carrots. I think of the love of other people as like glazed carrots. And if you are shying away from the love of God which is the main course, and you're trying to feed yourself only on glazed carrots, you're going to become dissatisfied after a while. The love from other people is partial, it's incomplete, it's imperfect. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, said St. Augustine. We are looking ultimately for God's love. But God will often provide love through other people. But it's like the glazed carrots. It's like a side dish. It's not the main course. It's not something that is a complete and balanced diet just on its own. Right, so that leads us into the fifth of the main stems that comes up from the trunk of shame, and that's the spiritual stem. And so many people, I see this all the time, have parts that are so pulling to disconnect from God, who is love. Blaise Pascal wrote that human beings must be known to be loved, but divine beings must be loved to be known. What that means is that we need to love God in order to know him. And so we have to find him lovable. And so often parts of us do not find God to be lovable. Why? Because of their distorted God images, the ways that they have made sense of their experience and God's role in their experience have cast God into horrible roles. Those are the negative God images. I did a whole series on problematic God images in episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast. God is not so tangible. He's not so immediate as other people are. And that allows for so many transferences to God, people filling in who God must be like on the basis of their parts experiences leads to all kinds of projections. Timothy Keller wrote, That to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Just quickly reviewing Edward Vasek's sequence in loving and being loved. He starts with how God first affirms us, and then God receives us, and then we accept God's love. See where that sequence is? There's more to it than that, but we start with God's affirmation. But again, so many of us are so defended 
and we've generalized from our experiences of people who we hoped would love us, and we've projected those experiences onto God. We've cast God into the image and likeness of those who have traumatized us. That's the God image problem. Again, check out episodes 23 to 29. I know I'm asking you to listen to a lot of episodes. It's like hours and hours and hours of episodes. Do what's reasonable, right? Do what you feel called to as far as listening to episodes. But there is so much in those episodes about the different kinds of God images, how those God images form, and what they say about the self, and also about the relationship between self and God. So those are the five stems. Those are the five main stems that come off of the the stump or the trunk of shame. We have the emotional stem, we have the, cog- the cognitive stem, we have the identity stem, we have the relationship stem, and we have the spiritual stem. Now, just a brief comment on active versus passive refusals to be loved. There are two major ways we can refuse to be loved. We can actively refuse to be loved where we say in no uncertain terms, I will not be loved. It's fairly obvious, right? Active refusals to be loved are more obvious. The passive refusals to be loved are actually, I believe, more numerous and more common, and they're also more serious, right? They're where we just shy away, where we just don't look, don't look, we won't engage, we will just move away. We're not even engaging. The person who's actively refusing to be loved is at least addressing the whole concept of being loved. He's at least wrestling with the idea of being loved, where the one who is passively refusing to be loved just shies away, just moves away. Let's talk about the five primary conditions for secure attachment, right? Felt sense of safety and protection, right? We are going to have to go through the valley of shame and fear and anger and grief. We are going to have to wrestle with these things if we are going to enter into a deep and connected, intimate relationship with God our Father and with Mary our Mother. And I think not wanting to deal with those things, not wanting to deal with the shame and the fear and the anger and the grief and the identity issues and all the things that we've been talking about is the main reason why so many people won't do it. It just doesn't feel safe enough to them. So that felt sense of safety and protection is so important. And then the second primary condition of secure attachment, feeling seen, heard, known, and understood this is a double-edged sword because when we understand this from an from a position of seeing the human person as a multiplicity as well as a unity with different parts, different parts want to feel seen, heard, known, and understood. Different parts, especially those that are exiled, really want to be seen, heard, known, and understood, but that feels dangerous to the protector parts, to the parts that have taken on the task of defending against the intensity of the burdens that those exiles carry. So there's this inherent internal polarization around these two primary conditions for secure attachment. The third one is feeling comforted, soothed, and reassured. Parts want to feel comforted, soothed, and reassured when they're distressed. 
And they also want to feel cherished, treasured, and delighted in. Bessel van der Kolk, in his best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, said, quote, If your parents' faces never lit up when they looked at you, it's hard to know what it feels like to be loved and cherished. If you come from an incomprehensible world filled with secrecy and fear, it's almost impossible to find the words to express what you have endured. If you grew up unwanted and ignored, it is a major challenge to develop a visceral sense of agency and self-worth, end quote. What often happens in families is that some parts of the child, some parts of the son or daughter are cherished, treasured, and delighted in, but other parts are not. So there's a partial acceptance. There isn't a complete love, a love that embraces the entirety of the person of the son or daughter. We need to be in a position where all of our parts can feel safe, where all of our parts can feel protected, where all of our parts can feel seen, heard, known, and understood, comforted, soothed, and reassured, cherished, treasured, and delighted in. Where all parts have a sense that the other, the lover, has our best interests in mind. All at once, not just some of the time for some of these parts and other times for other parts. No, the entire package. We need that in order to have integration. And so it's so important that these parts begin to work cooperatively and collaboratively. I want to close with this main point, that love heals. Love is the thing that heals. Antidepressants don't heal. Antipsychotics don't heal. The best that medication manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies claim is that they reduce symptoms. Nobody says that medications heal shame, that medications resolve trauma. Not even in the most slick marketing campaigns for different psychotropic drugs are you going to see that. Nobody dares to say that. What heals is love. And trauma researcher and psychiatrist Bruce Perry says, quote, the more healthy relationships a child has, the more likely he will be to recover from trauma and thrive. Relationships are the agents of change and the most powerful therapy is human love. From Bruce Perry, child psychiatrist. He's done a lot of work with trauma for decades. Shifting to the philosophical, we have our Catholic phenomenologist, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who says, quote, love alone brings a human being to full awareness of personal existence, for it is in love alone that man finds room enough to be what he is, end quote. We need love in order to be fully present with all of our parts, Notice what Dietrich von Hildebrand says, love alone brings a human being to full awareness of personal existence. No parts left behind, no parts exiled. For it is in love alone that man finds room enough to be what he is in order to be fully present, in order to be fully alive, in order to be fully engaged, we need to be loved fully. And who does that? Well, that is why we need God. That's why St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It's one of the reasons for that. And then finally, a writer, Nama Yehud, she says, quote, trauma ruptures and hollows. Compassion mends and fills. Love 
heals. Right? Love is bigger than compassion. Love heals. And so there you have it, the importance of love from a trauma researcher and psychiatrist, a philosopher, and a writer. And just to close with the example of St. Josephine Bakita, she was born in 1869 in the village of Olgasa in the Darfur region of the Sudan. She was a member of the Daju people. Her uncle was a tribal leader. It was a well-to-do family. They lived relatively a high standard of living. At age eight, though, she was kidnapped by slave traders. She was forced to walk barefoot 600 miles to a slave market. She was bought and sold many times, twice just on the way to the slave market. Over the next 12 years, she lived in slavery. She was again bought and sold many times. Some of her owners were extremely cruel. She remembers she remembers that some of them were sadists. There was the family of a Turkish general that would cut intricate patterns into her skin and then salt them so that the scars would become permanent. She suffered more than a hundred scars all over her body, on her breasts, on her abdomen, on her right arm. A total of 114 intricate patterns were cut into her belly, into her right arm, into her breasts. This was terrible, terrible abuse, right? But She persevered. She found our Lord Jesus Christ. And she has this great quote, this woman who was sold into slavery. She said, quote, I am definitively loved and whatever happens to me, I am awaited by this love. End quote. She had a deep and abiding relationship with God and the three persons of the Trinity. So I offer that as an example of someone who experienced horrific abuse, whippings, beatings, slavery, and who could embrace her situation. She said, quote, if I were to meet those who kidnapped me and even those who tortured me, I would kneel and kiss their hands. For if these things had not happened, I would not have been a Christian and a religious today. That, that is faith. That is an openness to love. That is embracing God's providential care. That is an astounding confidence in God's providence. All right. So what do we got to do here? Let's get to our action plan. First of all, I'm just going to say it like this. You got to pray. You got to pray. You got to set time aside every day to enter into a relationship with God. The point here is to focus on your relationship with the persons of the Trinity and with Mary as a little child, as a little son or daughter. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God is made up of such as these. All right, how do you do that? We're here to help you with that. The litanies of the heart. Those are prayers that Dr. Jerry of Souls and Hearts wrote. There's the litany of the closed heart, the litany of the fearful heart, the litany of the wounded heart. All of these hearts are different ways that we can respond to trauma. They've got different issues. And so Dr. Jerry has written three different litanies. I really do believe they're inspired to help overcome not only spiritual blocks, but natural blocks, blocks that are in your human formation, in your natural foundation for the spiritual life. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash lit, L-I-T, or you can click on the tab at the top of the homepage and you can get those litanies. You can download them for free. There's also a guide to praying the litanies. Really want folks to be praying those. They, they have, I think, an amazing effect 
for these kinds of issues. I'm also going to recommend a few books. Um, again, you are not going to read your way into a relationship with God, but they can really support your prayer. They can really support your journey into a deeper connection with the three persons of the Trinity and with Our Lady. So the first one is by Benedictine Fathers Thomas Acklin and Boniface Hicks. It's called Personal Prayer, A Guide for Receiving the Father's Love. It's just excellent. Also, Father Jacques Philippe's book, Time for God, that's an excellent guide for learning to pray from a more relational perspective. And then Father Thomas Dubay, The Fire Within, that's more of a Carmelite approach. The Carmelites are great about that relationship with God, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux. Um, and in fact, that reminds me of Father Jacques Philippe's book, The Way of Trust and Confidence, which is a retreat that's guided by St. Teresa of Lisieux. That is also excellent. If you haven't been to confession recently, go, go. And if you feel like you can't go, that you've got a psychological block to going, let me know. I want to hear about it. I'm thinking about doing, uh, at some point in the future, either a weekly reflection or maybe a podcast episode on psychological hindrances to going to confession. There's no excuses. If you can't, if you feel like you can't go, I want you to get in touch with me. 317-567-9594. That's my cell phone number. Crisis at soulsandhearts.com. So now I want to shout out to all Catholic therapists and to all graduate students in mental health fields. The interior therapist community is about to start our fall groups in September. We have more than 80 therapists and graduate students in mental health fields in the interior therapist community. Each of us is working on our own human formation, but not in isolation. Our new foundations experiential groups are forming. They'll be starting in September. And we also have advanced groups for those that have more experience with internal family systems and working on their own interior lives. If you want to get a sense of what that's like, you can check out my webinar from June 24th, 2022. The recording is now up on the Catholic Psychotherapy Association website. It's titled Of Beams and Specs, Therapist-Focused Consultation. They've got it at half price now. It's only 30 bucks. I don't get any money from that, but it gives you a really good sense of how I work. I actually have three demonstrations of working with real therapists on real issues within their real lives. All right, so that's available. It gives you a sense of what we do in the uh, Foundations Experiential Groups in the Interior Therapist Community, soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. Check that out if you're a therapist or a graduate student. Also, I'm doing weekly reflections. I email those out. They're now related to each podcast episode. They're delivered to your email inbox every Wednesday. If you sign up on our mailing list, you can do that at soulsandhearts.com. Click on the button on the homepage that says, I want to get Dr. Peter's weekly reflection. We eventually do get around to archiving them in the blog section of our website. So you can check that out. Look at the back issues, soulsandhearts.com backslash blog. And then remember, conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday, you can talk to me, 
4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, every Tuesday and Thursday, on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. You can email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. If I don't pick up, I'm on another call. Just leave a voicemail. I'll get back to you. If not that day, then the next time I have conversation hours. I do want to be able to keep in touch with you. So many of you have given me so many good ideas for the podcast, so many good ideas for the weekly reflections. And so I'm grateful to you. I keep you in my prayers. Please also pray for me. And with that, we'll close this episode by invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us, St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. Pray for us.